0: You're listening to the Hub City Church podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Amen. Thanks, Marilla. Hey, good morning. You're doing well? Good. Okay, no one wanted front row. I see that. It's okay. Um, well, guys, I don't want to make this white noise, but I do want to continue to encourage, do not let this time be the only time that you spend in Matthew. Please, like the, the fact that we have the scriptures, that we can be marinating in it constantly over and over again. Um, I mean, there's 28 chapters. Chapter a day is, you know, a month. And, um, and it would be good just to be a community that's steeped in that. So I don't want to become white noise, but just the encouragement. Like, let's continue to dive into that. But we're in Matthew chapter 3. We've already covered a lot of ground, um, and yet we're still only in chapter 3. So it's super rich. Um, but by chapter three, uh, just to kind of speed us up or catch us up to where we're at in the story, Matthew, uh, or sorry, Jesus, Matthew is full grown when he wrote this, but Jesus is full grown in Matthew chapter three, but not much is known about Jesus's earlier life. Okay. We don't have like a book of the scriptures that talk about Jesus as an infant or whatever, which would be like parenting gold, right? Or maybe it'd actually be terrifying because he, like he was perfect. So it'd be frustrating. But what was Jesus' schooling like? What was he like as a kid? Like, what, did he have friends? Was he weird? <laughs> like, what, what are the, these are the questions I ask. Did he become an official rabbi at some point? Looking across a lot of the gospel viewpoints and the different viewpoints they have, we can piece together a few bits of information. I just want to say them real fast. So all of the gospels talk about Jesus growing up in Galilee. Okay, and we looked at that a few weeks ago in the little town of Nazareth, literally the sticks, like this little, little kind of like nobody, can, nothing good comes from Nazareth kind of place. But the Gospel of Luke tells us about when he was 12 years old. When he was 12 years old, there's this little story, I'll say it real fast. His parents, Mary and Joseph, they took Jesus and they went to Jerusalem every year to celebrate Passover. And they went to Passover, they did the whole festival thing, and then they went home. And if you thought Home Alone was uh, not a Bible story, you're about to be corrected, right? They leave Jesus there, right? She looks at the camera and goes, Kevin, except it's Jesus, right? It's, it's, they literally leave him there, this middle schooler in the temple. And this is Luke chapter 2, verse 46. And after three days, they found him in the temple. <laughs> three days, just think, okay? Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So by 12, already we're seeing, man, this guy, like something is different about Jesus. All the gospels later refer to Jesus as rabbi by his followers. We don't actually know if he went through all the official channels to become an official rabbi. But what's interesting is one who did, his name is Nicodemus. He was an official Pharisee. In John chapter 3, he meets with, with Jesus, kind of on the, on the down low, on the secret. He says this in John 3 two, Rabbi to Jesus. A, a Pharisee says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there's even kind of like game recognized game a little bit, right? He, he, they see that Jesus is this Rabbi, and then Luke tells us in chapter three twenty-three, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age. Okay, so we're caught up. That's that's kind of all we get. Little snippets of Jesus. He's here. He's grown up. He's about thirty years of age. He's incredibly intelligent. He's a teacher. He doesn't have a large following yet. We're going to get into that, but he does have that in his in in his character. So Jesus comes on the scene after a pretty incredible and tumultuous first two years that we looked at, and then about three decades-ish later, he comes back to do the work he came to do. And we looked last week at John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who also had some prophecy, prophecies spoken over him and had a fairly significant birth, and then he went into the wilderness for about as long a time, and he's back. And this is the message he is preaching, Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we look last week at when John, who was the first voice like a prophet in a long, long time, spoke and talked of the kingdom of heaven being near everyone, it said all of Judea came to him to repent and be baptized. Why baptism? Baptism is a very complicated subject. Okay? Everything from what it is, what it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be done, etc., And I'm no expert in this whole sermon today, so don't (laughs) elevate me to that. No expert, nor is the time to really get into all the weeds, but we are going to talk a lot about baptism today. But going off of the scriptures here, when John preaches a repent message, the people flock to baptism. One of the primary reasons is going back to the Levitical law of purification. You only need to repent if you are unclean. If you're unclean, and there's about 600 plus laws on all the different ways that you could become unclean, then you need to become ceremoniously clean again to be able to worship or be included again in the group. So upon the confessions of sin and the washing of the water is a ritualistic way of cleansing oneself in order to be considered clean again or right with God, okay? Therefore, the prerequisite for baptism was acknowledgement of sin and repentance of sin. Are we all, we're all there a little bit? Okay, Another layer of baptism is to symbolize the journey of the Israelite people from slavery and death to freedom and life. From Egypt through the Red Sea, passing through the waters, and then to the Promised Land, passing through the Jordan River. And we briefly mentioned this about Jesus' life, but we made a graphic that is, especially in Jesus' earlier life, he mirrors that of the Israelite journey. So sorry if it's a little far away to see, but you see in, in uh, Exodus 1, chapter 1, the birth of Moses, the birth of Jesus. There's, there's this fleeing to Egypt, there's this death of the children, passing through the Red Sea, now we'll see in Jesus' baptism, the wilderness wanderings of the Exodus people, Jesus, we're going to see next week, gets into the wilderness, we'll see what happens there, and then bringing of the law of God and the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus. And you can see how he is becoming the face of Israel. He is fulfilling and being this promised people that the people are always supposed to be, but they got caught in these cycles of self-seeking and cycles of sin and turning from God. So with the rich history of passing through the Red Sea and then later on passing through the Jordan River, which is the river they're at right now, to enter into the promised land, this is also a symbol of the grand narrative of God's people passing through the waters to what God has for them on the other side. So in this story, when people are coming to be baptized, whether they're trying to be ceremoniously clean for this kingdom of heaven or they're symbolizing their great journey of being the people of God, they're acting upon this sacrament of baptism. The great crowds are there. Some Pharisees and some Sadducees were there, as we looked at last week. John's baptizing some. He's yelling at others for their unrepentant heart. It would have been quite the scene and this is in the midst in the midst of this is when Jesus shows up Matthew 3:13 and then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him In Matthew's gospel we aren't told that John knew Jesus before him or had a relationship with him It's tough to imagine though that being cousins and if you read Luke's gospel Mary visits Elizabeth quite often um, that they wouldn't know of each other. But in the gospel writer John's account, we get this testimony from John the Baptist himself. And we'll see we'll see um, what it is. John 1:29. The next day he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who reigns before me because he was before me. If you remember him saying that. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this, Jesus, is the Son of God. So right there, there's like this this eyewitness testimony of the scene we're about to dive into. And John has some idea who who Jesus is. And back to Matthew, he he has a reluctance before he baptizes him. He has this reluctance to baptize Jesus. If you remember that last week, we talked about his reluctance to uh, baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, you want to look good. You're on the outside but you have not repented in your heart. He saw their unrepentant heart and their empty religious practices. But here, John is reluctant to baptize Jesus for a different reason. Because John knows that Jesus, even though he says he doesn't know him, has no sin or need of repentance. Matthew three fourteen. John wouldn't have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John discerns this. I, the baptizer, need to be baptized by you. That's how different we are. That's how set apart, how holy you are. Not that John thinks he's perfect, but he's fulfilling a priestly duty for the people and an opportunity for hearts to soften towards God. But John's submission to Jesus' authority in the area of cleanliness before God is absolute. Jesus' response is fascinating. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus doesn't need to become righteous. He is the righteous one. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. But he is going to. He's going to be baptized. Why? Why? I would argue because he's choosing to take his place for the people. He's already begun to take the burden of being of the new Israel, fulfilling God's intended purpose, and here as a fully grown man and fully God, he's choosing to humble himself and demonstrate for his followers the journey symbolized in baptism, that is, from death to life. Later on in our scriptures, the Apostle Paul is going to articulate and what we've seen to be true throughout all of human history, but especially in the scriptures, that sin leads to death. Baptism was the symbol of dying to the self, putting to death the sin in the self that creates the uncleanliness so that there could be the opportunity for life again. Jesus, who is sinless, has a bit of a different experience here. And this is the scene of Jesus' baptism, and it's extraordinary. 16 of Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." What a scene. Just to sit into that and to even know that from John, that, that John the Baptist, assuming from the Spirit of God, was told, The one whom you see the Spirit on is the Christ. Can you imagine the scene for John as well? To see it. Now, many people over the years have, have wanted to imagine it. So I, I found a, a little bit of art. I love art um, and I love pictures and paintings and things. So this is kind of a famous painting. This is. Um, I, and I'm, I apologize, I don't know the names as well. I know Leonardo da Vinci, I know how to say that. But Andrea del Veraccio, if that's the way you say it, that was actually his master. Leonardo da Vinci's, like, trainer. He painted most of this picture, and, uh, and just a in fact that doesn't mean anything to anyone, Leonardo da Vinci actually finished it by painting his fa- or face on the, the kid or girl or somebody on the bottom left, um, and it actually made his master never want to paint again. It's pretty funny. Um, but uh, they, this is how they depicted it. Notice even like the bird, the dark bird, is like fleeing to the darkness, right? But you have the dove descending in God's hand. Like this is how they kind of pictured this and, and very specific of the, uh, the sprinkling there. Uh, the next one is um, uh, a Spanish painter, Juan de Perea, the Baptism of Christ in the 1660s. This is a very Baroque style um, You can see lots of contrast, lots of dark to light, really fascinating. It's hard to see. Up in the little woods there is actually John the Baptist preaching, uh, so I don't know who this character is. Um, And then a bunch of chubby babies, which is awesome, right? So just kind of like fun, like how people are like, they're wrestling with this. Like, what is this idea? What Jesus' baptism, it's huge. It's it's a big thing. Um, And then this is a picture. This is modern day Jordan River. So people, pilgrims can go. And uh, you can actually be baptized right there. And I just, I love how they like put gates and, you know, they make it safe and, you know, kind of thing. And so you can go. Has anyone ever been? You've been? Oh, amazing. Have you really? That's incredible. That's amazing. Dang. Okay. Sweet. Um, Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Um, And then, of course, my personal favorite, I asked my four-year-old. I... I said, I read her the story, and I was like, "Just draw, and I'll just put it in the sermon." And she, she drew So I guess the houses are Galilee, I guess, And she came from the city and, um, and then the sun, and obviously Jesus. So be blessed by Peyton's <laughs> drawing of baptism. Now, while we could spend a while talking about like what it looked like, how it was supposed to be done, how we baptize even today, in the church and depending on your tradition of faith, it looks different, right? There's full immersion in the water versus a sprinkling. There's infant baptism versus believer baptism where there needs to be a confession of faith, whether you use tap water or LaCroix. I mean, there's lots of options. It's just a lot sometimes. But what I'm most fascinated to explore with you all today is what baptism means for the Israelites right here in Matthew's day as Christ is unveiling what it could mean and unveiling the kingdom of heaven here. Keep in mind, the people have been waiting for the kingdom of God. They've been waiting for the kingdom of heaven. They've been in exile time and time again. They constantly offer sacrifices. They constantly partake in the Jewish law of cleanliness. They know that the day of the Lord is coming, that God's kingdom is coming, and they want to be ready for it. And after 400 silent years, God sends a prophet in John the Baptist to preach that the kingdom is coming. It's here, guys. Get ready. The great sign has been spoken, so the people rushed to be baptized to get right before the Lord. They needed to get right, so when the day of the Lord came, then they would have no sin in them and be found not guilty and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. So baptism was for something. It was for repentance to become clean once again and that is what John is doing. If you notice John the Baptist, he's not preaching salvation in baptism, he's preaching repentance in baptism. Matthew 3:11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with salvation, with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John isn't preaching that this is it. He's not saying the most profound thing you can do to show your faith in God is to be baptized in the church. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is coming, so repent and prepare yourself for what is next. The people are responding and are in great anticipation of what is to come, probably looking around, maybe even looking to the skies, like wherever they were drawn. Little do they know, Jesus from Galilee, unknown, not attractive as we looked at last week, No followers, yet no prestige, born in a manger, not a temple, grew up in Nazareth, not Jerusalem, not coming in on a white horse. He's in his swim trunks right next to them, right next in line. And when he gets to John, somehow John knows this is the one. They have this little conversation and then Jesus is baptized. And whether the people, it's actually unclear if the people around got to see the heavens open, or the dove descending, or God speaking. It's very unclear, although we read that John said it. We get this insight that this is an anointing moment for Jesus. God himself speaks and blesses Jesus as his anointed son. Notice, has Jesus done anything miraculous yet? Not because he did a miracle. Has Jesus given any incredible sermons yet? Because in humility and obedience to the call to live as fully human, Jesus follows through the practice of baptism to make the way for the people of God to follow him. He is the righteous one doing what the unrighteous had to do so that the unrighteous could become righteous through him. Jesus' life is already reversing what the people expected from God and his kingdom. And this is the kingdom of heaven, but it's upside down. Jesus should be confessing the sin that has led to death and then entering through the waters. Instead, he's bringing a sinless life into the practice of dying to self by being baptized himself. Jesus is already modeling the place he's going to take for the people. Where there was once death, he will bring life. Where there was sin and bondage, he will bring freedom. Where the people have failed and darkness has won, he will not fail and he will bring light. This baptism is the foreshadowing of Jesus going through death to bring life. Or another way to put it, Jesus, the revealer of the kingdom of heaven, will bring life, but it will be through death. And what that looks like at this point in Matthew chapter 3, they don't have a clue. But this will start to unfold as we continue through Matthew's gospel. Today, what we, should see Jesus, what we should see is Jesus is continuing to fulfill all righteousness in his life. Isaiah prophesied that God would have a chosen servant. This is Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations what an incredible position this servant will bring justice to the nations but this servant would suffer Isaiah 53 but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sins of us all. Right? God is anointing Jesus in this baptism scene here as the one whom all of that will take place. This great and awesome suffering servant Messiah is my son. It's all upside down. It's winning by losing. Jesus' anointing looks like a sinner's baptism. Jesus's crown later on is going to be made of thorns. His throne isn't high, it's low. Jesus' life isn't comfortable, it's full of suffering. It's all winning for the kingdom of heaven, but it looks like losing down here on earth. It's life through death. That's all encompassed in the symbol of baptism. And now if we, as a modern church, we understand the significance of this upside-down kingdom, then we have a role and a partnership with God in continuing this beautiful practice in baptism. The question could be asked, Well, why do we continue to baptize then? When salvation isn't found in the act, what is the beauty and gift for us and the practice of this in the modern day church? Well, a couple things. In the end of it all, when Jesus goes through the full actual death, burial, resurrection, and we read his great commission to his followers in Matthew twenty-eight, we read this. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority. Just pause there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So first off, one of the main reasons we still do baptism as a church is because Jesus said to do it. He told us to do it. Might seem simple, but it's right there. But there's a difference. He's not saying to baptize them so that they could then repent and then become disciples. Jesus said, make disciples who are baptized, immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing those who are at the same time giving their lives and discipleship to Jesus. Spiritually soaked with the Spirit of God. Going to back to what John the Baptist said last week, and Jesus will say in a Sermon on the Mount that every healthy tree bears good fruit. It's tough to not bear good fruit if you're spiritually dripping wet with the triune God. But also going back to the Great Commission, see, baptism used to be what the people did for something. Examples for repentance, for cleanliness. The authority for their cleanliness was the ritual act of baptism. But in Jesus who has now all authority, it's something to be done in the name of God. The name of the God that revealed himself in full Trinitarian power at Jesus' baptism, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The authority of righteousness is no longer in the sacraments themselves, but Jesus himself as the embodiment of the sacrifice, as the sacraments. Jesus is the baptism we are baptized into. Just like later in the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus' own body and blood is the communion that we receive. Now listen, baptism and the sacraments are and have been a fairly hot topic in all of church history. Right? Churches split over this stuff. Denominations start over teachings on this subject. So all of us, my prayer for myself, for all of us is just in humility. We need to read for ourselves and fall into the traditions that most take us to the heart of worship of God. But as is usually the case in our scriptures, the Old Testament sets up a theme or something that then becomes a symbol, and then Jesus usually fulfills or completes that symbol in himself, and then the New Testament writers help explain and expand on that fulfillment and what that means for our lives in the present age. So we've talked a lot about baptism, but I want to get real practical in our thinking about baptism as we close today. And I think we'll find the Apostle Paul's words really encouraging here. So the Apostle Paul writes much of the New Testament. He writes so beautifully in his letter to the Romans, where he's systematically proving that Christ is sufficient for salvation. Okay, there's not a bunch of stuff you have to do. Christ is sufficient. And where sin was, his grace is enough to cover all who would confess, repent, and be made new by him. Paul brings up this concept that we are not just baptized ritualistically, but that we're baptized into Christ Jesus spiritually. This is how he writes about baptism into Jesus. Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Come on, Paul, bring it. Christ's death is our death, but his life and life to the fullest is our life. The, the Greek word used in Matthew for baptism means immersion. It means dip or immersion. This is symbolized with water, and that is what John uses, but restored life with Jesus being, means being immersed, Completely covered in a life, in, in a life that is a life-giving spirit of God covered. A life immersed in God. Does that describe your life? Fully immersed with God. When the ancient Israelites were baptized, they were identifying with their ancient story from Egypt to promised land, from death to life. Today, we baptize and are baptized to identify with the story of Jesus. Where he paved the way for the sinner to receive salvation, for the sick to be healed, for the lowly to be lifted up, for the dead to be made alive again. Baptism used to be something for something to do, but in Christ Jesus, we baptize because of something done. Paul continues in practicality here, verse twelve of Romans six: Let us not sin, therefore. Let let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Beginning with Jesus' baptism, the Christian baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith, the faith that Jesus is the Christ, the image of the invisible God, the revealer of the kingdom of heaven, the one who said it is finished. And because baptism is no longer the basis for our cleansing, it is a freedom for those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord to symbolize that being washed in newness of life, shedding off their old ways of the self and putting on the new self, immersed, completely covered in the spirit. This is what's so amazing about what Jesus has done for us. If you believe and you've immersed your life in the spirit of God, it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory now. That means when God reveals himself, he doesn't see who's worthy or not worthy, clean or not clean he sees his son. He sees who, the one who is worthy in us, in Christ. And then in that, we then become the sons and daughters of God. And the echo of what was said to Jesus in our passage today is passed down to you and me. And please hear this. God saying, you are my son. You are my daughter. And I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. That's what it means to not be under the law anymore. Christ has freed his people, freed us from the continual ritual habits of, quote, getting clean, because we are no longer under the laws that do that, but now we belong to a person. We enter into a baptism of living water, life eternal, the good and better baptism that is once and lasting. This is not robotic religion. This is freedom in Christ. Right? This should be good news. Our rituals, our practices don't save us. Christ saved us. We don't look to a program. We look to a person, to God, through the person of Jesus Christ, immersed in the Spirit. And here's the challenge for us this morning. Most, if not all of us, want the freedom. We want the life. The ancient Israelites wanted that too. But what's the path Jesus laid out for his followers? It is life, but through what? Death life through death and baptism. Going off of Paul's language in Romans, we need to ask ourselves, have we then truly died to ourself? Have we truly committed to keeping our members, our thoughts, our bodies, our desires for righteousness? Are we saying we want the life in Jesus, but living a life that does not bear that fruit? If our lives are not fully immersed in God, then we'll see a sprinkling here or a drip there, but leaving much of our lives to not be anointed and set apart for God's glorious ministry here on earth. And our prayer and vision at Hub City is that we would be a community of people who have chosen to pass through this spiritual baptism of following in and being formed by Jesus, where we truly take seriously to daily pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him, where we are restored to look like the people of God we were meant to be, and then partners in the ministry of God, actively restoring all things to himself. This should be good news. The good news that sin can be put to death in your mind and your body today. The good news that the kingdom of darkness is shrinking and has been and has no power in God's light. And we'll see next week. We'll see next week an example of this because immediately Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus immediately is is forced with, are you going to choose yourself or are you going to deny yourself? And as he's going to do, he's going to show us the breakthrough of that, demonstrating the powerlessness of sin before God. But today we're going to respond, not just to the information we heard, but responding in worship to a God who is readily available and desires to form a people into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And before I go through the response things, if today something gripped you about baptism, about Christ's baptism, and you believe but baptism isn't a practice that you've had the joy of experiencing, we would encourage you to do that. We would encourage you to talk through that, to talk with one of us about what that looks like, the tremendous act of joyful worship, to declare for yourself and others that I have passed through the death that Jesus died, and so I want to live the life that Jesus has for me. But we do that in a lot of other ways too that are beautiful, where we sing, we sing praises to God, and we're going to shout those out. We pray to one another, pray to our God, have communion with him, and talking, and speaking, and sharing our hearts, that's where those, the members that, that Paul talked about, that's where we dedicate those things. So God, take these things, reveal in my life where I have not died to myself, where I'm still holding on to these things. Will you reveal that to me? Right. we give of our riches, some of, sometimes that's in our money, that's in our finances, especially in America, that's something we hold on to. It's ours, we worked hard for it, right? But to actually, it's, it's countercultural to give it to something to bless the community. But that's the beauty of the church, that people would be without need or want. And then receive communion. This is huge. We're talking about the sacraments. These are things that have been happening for so long, baptism and communion. And again, we could do a whole sermon on communion, and we will when we get to it. But the thing, the thing about it is this is Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. It's the same kind of idea, the spiritual act of symbolism here. And I want to read for you Matthew 26, the, the scene where Jesus shares about communion, Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we go to the table, when we go to receive, we who are the many from the one bread. Like this is Christ saying, listen, I have, I have done this for you. I've passed through this for you so that you, I who know no sin could become sin so now we could stand as the righteous before God because of Christ. So let's worship him today. Can we do that? Let me pray and then you're free to go and receive